On October 22, 1962, President John F. Kennedy broadcast a special message to the nation from his office in the White House. Here is President Kennedy as he delivered that message bearing on recent events in Cuba. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Bundle up. We're heading back to the Cold War to reflect on the Cuban Missile Crisis, a pivotal moment for an NGA heritage organization, the National Photographic Interpretation Center, or NPIC. Later, we'll be tuning into some remarks given by NGA historian and friend of the pod, Dr. Gary Weir, at an agency commemoration event this past October at NGA Springfield, Virginia campus. This is GeoInteresting. For 13 days in October 1962, the U.S. and Soviet Union stared down the barrel of mutually assured destruction, beginning what some historians have called the 13 most dangerous days in world history, what came to be known as the Cuban Missile Crisis. Throughout the Cuban Missile Crisis, NPIC provided timely, vital intelligence from images captured by Air Force U-2 high-altitude and U.S. Navy low-altitude photo-reconnaissance aircraft. On October 15, 1962, a team of imagery analysts under the leadership of NPIC founding director Arthur P. Lundahl pored over these images and quickly realized the gravity of their discovery and the risk the images posed to upsetting the balance of power between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Analyst Dino Brugioni, James Holmes, Vincent Dorenzo, Dick Renninger, and Joseph Sullivan worked to prepare Lundahl to brief Kennedy the next day. And the rest, as they say, is history. After successful brinkmanship and diplomacy by the Kennedy administration de-escalated the nuclear crisis, NPIC photo interpreters provided key support to confirm through imagery analysis that Soviet nuclear forces were, in fact, being withdrawn from Cuba. But you don't have to take it from me. Here is Defense Secretary Robert McNamara at a televised briefing on the removal of Soviet missiles from Cuba held February 6, 1963, at the State Department. The United States maintains a continuing and an effective high-altitude surveillance program covering the island of Cuba. Photographic coverage of the entire territory of Cuba is obtained at least once a week. That coverage provides surveillance of key areas, port areas, airfields, naval bases, cruise missile sites, Soviet ground force garrisons, and certain of the Navy logistical centers. In addition to this weekly island-wide coverage, individual high-altitude flights for more detailed coverage of specific objectives are scheduled whenever receipt of intelligence indicates the need for such additional reconnaissance. Low-level reconnaissance aircraft are kept on a 24-alert basis for use whenever required. And supplementing this program, 
The reconnaissance aircraft of the United States Navy continue to photograph all Soviet shipping arriving or departing from Cuba. The Soviet Union did attempt to establish clandestinely a major offensive weapons base in this hemisphere. The United States was able to deter this effort, and the United States is now monitoring the remaining Soviet personnel and equipment in Cuba through reconnaissance activities of the type which we have described to you today. Following the crisis, Kennedy commended NPIC director Arthur Lundahl in a personally signed letter. The letter thanked Lundahl and his team for their tireless efforts during the crisis and acknowledged the quality of the imagery analysis he considered so crucial to his decision-making. Their discovery was a critical milestone in the evolution of geospatial intelligence and its vital role in shaping foreign policy decision-making. Now that we've covered the history, let's check in with Dr. Weir for some personal reflections on the crisis. Did the average American understand most of that? I was 11 years old when all that took place. I wasn't paying much attention. I'm sure my parents were. How do you understand something like that? When you're an average person, as my father was, for example, he was a welder for the New York City Transit Authority, did he know what a medium-range ballistic missile was or what it could do? Unless somebody watched Atomic Cafe or, or some of the film about Hiroshima, did you really understand what a nuclear weapon could do? It was frightening, certainly. There were so many different reports and such about these things. How did you know? How did you understand it? Did you, could you understand it? From a historian's vantage point, the only way to understand when you can't be there, because of course I have to look back now because at 11 I wasn't cognizant of any of these things, all right? You look and you look and you look again, source after source after source after source to corroborate. You try to bring yourself as close to the event and people as you possibly can, so you can almost taste and smell the situation. You're never going to be there. You're never going to go through time to really understand what those people went through. But if you're going to understand the Cuban Missile Crisis and the threat that it posed, you have to get as close to that as you possibly can. Now, when I was in college and in graduate school, I thought I had been there already. I read Dino's book, Dino Bruscioni, of course, you know the book he wrote, Eyeball to Eyeball, which is probably the best historical narrative of the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis written to date. I read all these things, I thought I appreciated it. I discovered I didn't. I had an experience in February of 2002 that taught me a great deal. I was working on a project and I was sitting in a hotel room, a Sheridan Hotel actually, in Moscow, and the person across the table from me was Nikolai Shumkov, Captain First Rank of Soviet Navy, retired, and he had a gold tooth, which was terribly distracting. Every time he opened his mouth, it sort of threw me off, sort of lit up the room, you know. And we talked about a great thing about his, you know, about his experiences in the, in the Russian Navy, the Soviet Navy, and I knew why I wanted to talk to him. Because he was the CEO, the commanding officer of the B-130, one of the Soviet foxtrots that was tasked during Project Anadir, which was, by the way, what the Soviets called the Cuban Missile Crisis, was tasked during Project Anadir to head to Mariel, Cuba, where they would set up a submarine base in the midst of all of this that we've been just listening to. And he sailed right into the Cuban Missile Crisis and, of course, was forced to the surface by the carrier Essex and other ships. 
and quite frankly, profoundly humiliated. But in the course of the oral history, he said, well, that was only, not the only thing I was involved in. I said, well, talk to me, talk to me. Exactly one year before that, he was the first person with the B-130, with that Foxtrot, to test the Soviet nuclear torpedo, the T-5. And he related to me, and I still have the recording, because I was working with a particularly fine translator. He related to me what it was like launching that weapon and trying his best up at the Novaya Zemla test range to get behind some obstruction with his boat submerged so he could avoid the shockwave. He said he didn't avoid it entirely in his, book, his, his boat almost went into a snap roll. He knew what the T-5 was capable of doing, and when he was sailing toward Mariel in the fall of 1962, he had one of those torpedoes in his forward torpedo room. And he smiled, and I saw his gold tooth. And I said, would you have used it? Now, I have to characterize him first so he doesn't come out to be one of the Cold War demons that we so easily draw in our minds. He's a very kind man, easy to talk to, not arrogant or aggressive in any way. But as so many officers I've run into in all the services, very professional. And he looked back at me and he said, yes, I would have used it if I was, if I was authorized to do that. And I suddenly realized reflecting on that for a moment, that I never knew about the threat of the Cuban Missile Crisis at all, not really. The threat was sitting across the, across the table from me in Moscow. He would have pushed the button that would have vaporized part of, the, part of the US Navy and part of the Caribbean. What did I understand? Those of you who have been in combat understand this far better than I ever will. The closest I could ever come with my sources is somebody like Shrumkov who could tell me what he would do. I would have to digest that and realize what that meant. He was the man who would have pressed the button. I had never experienced that before. So I suddenly realized, first of all, how it might have happened. And I suddenly realized the significance and the importance of the imagery work being done in this country at that period of time. Given the fact that a lot of my background is in World War I history, I realized that Brigadier General Charteris, who helped create the, the campaign for the Battle of Neuf Chapelle in 1915, when you look at his memoirs, and he, he related in his memoirs all these, all these photographs there that were on his table. He'd never seen these before, 1915, mind you. He says, these could be turned out to really good sources one day. Probably one of the most amazing comments of the 20th century. Or later on in World War II, when one of our British colleagues in our Hall of Fame, Constance Babington-Smith, raised it to a strategic level, she and her colleagues found the location where the V-1 and the V-2 rockets were being fired from against our country. All imagery analysis, which started out as photo interpretation after all, didn't it? You didn't analyze, you just looked at the photos, you reported up the chain what you found until somebody called Art Lundahl said, what does that mean? I like to have a nickel for every time I interviewed an a, a imagery analyst in this agency who said to me, Art Lundahl asked me what I thought I was seeing, what I thought that meant. 
so the community graduated from photo interpreter to imagery analysis. Thus the importance of NPIC. And four gentlemen who actually managed to help Lundell and others tell Kennedy what he needed to hear. Holmes, Reininger, Sullivan, and Dorenzo. The four guys who cracked the Cuban Missile Crisis imagery on the first go-around. I remember when Vince Dorenzo was here with us in 2012, when we had our 50th anniversary uh, memorial for the Cuban Missile Crisis. I asked him in the panel, when did you realize what the Russians were doing? He said, the minute I saw the crates. I said, they weren't open days, they didn't have to be. The photogrammetry told me exactly how long they were, what the dimensions were. They always packed them the exact same way. I've seen those crates a thousand times before. He knew what it was before it ever landed. That's when imagery analysis became an art and a science, practiced by people at the highest level. And how important that was in October of 1962 when we faced that terrible threat, a threat that I appreciated more once I had the, the guy across the table from me who could have pressed the button. After Shumkov told me that he would have pressed the button, his gold tooth didn't distract me anymore because he wasn't smiling. The same professional analysis that averted nuclear war in 1962 is still produced at NGA to inform the president and other policymakers. Here's more on that from NGA Director, Vice Admiral Robert Sharp. Right, so the challenges we're facing now are not that different. They're different, but they're not that different. And I'm convinced that what made us successful during those days uh, was our people and our partnerships and our, our uh, innovation, you know, and our commitment to mission to go out and do what our nation needs us to do. And this is just a great reminder of what made us successful in the past and what's going to make us successful today and going into the future. So we are a combat support agency um, and we are proud members of the intelligence community. We are the sentinels and the guardians of the nation. We look out for things like this. And this was a great example also of the impact we have in taking uh, and revealing and showing what's happening so that any, anywhere from national security decision makers right down to tactical level execution forces can have what they need to make decisions, to have discussions, to plan uh, to, to do things, right? So it's kind of cool, I think. I'm a little more than biased because I'm part of Team NGA, but I think what we do is, is really cool. Thanks for joining the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency for another episode of our podcast, Geo Interesting. Like what you heard? Join us. Check out all of our current NGA career opportunities at intelligencecareers.gov. And this is one case where an intelligence agency wants you to spread the word. Tell a friend about GeoInteresting. Look for us on your preferred podcasting platform or on YouTube or read a transcript of the episode at nga.mil. The path we have chosen for the present is full of hazards, as all paths are. 
but it is the one most consistent with our character and courage as a nation and our commitments around the world. The cost of freedom is always high, but Americans have always paid it. And one path we shall never choose, and that is the path of surrender or submission. Our goal is not the victory of might, but the vindication of right. Not peace at the expense of freedom, but both peace and freedom here in this hemisphere, and we hope around the world. God willing, that goal will be achieved. Thank you, and good night.